Most of us recall that the Lord Jesus has given many names uh, throughout Scripture, uh, one of them being uh, the Prince of Peace. And when we acknowledge Jesus as the Prince of Peace, of course, that concept of peace infiltrates many areas uh, of life. And there are two particular areas of life and of our walk as Christians that the Apostle Paul addresses in Philippians chapter 4. And I'd like to ask you to turn to Philippians chapter 4. And as you can see from the outline in the back of your bulletin, I've chosen just a few verses, verses 2 through 7. And even though there are two spheres of life that he addresses here concerning peace, the first being peace within the congregation, that is peace between Christians, and the second being personal peace, that peace that we have in our own hearts because of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ in an intimate and personal way and having trusted Him as Lord and Savior. Now, I would suspect that it's improbable that the first arena of peace that he addresses, that is, between congregational members, I think it's unlikely that's something that is a current issue for anyone in our church. It's possible. I don't know everything that's going on, but I know most of what's going on relationally. And so it's unlikely that that uh, is not something that you would be dealing with yourself right now today, but it's good to know what he says. So if we do encounter a relational lack of peace we see some scriptural guidelines on how to deal with it. But what is highly likely is everyone identifies with the second area of peace that he talks about, and that's the peace that we have uh, within our own hearts uh, because of the trials, afflictions, troubles, and hardships uh, of life. So I'd like to read verses uh, 2 through 7 and then walk through them with you in our time together this morning. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement, also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Please pray with me for a moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures. Each time we come to them, we hear ringing in our ears the Apostles Paul's comments elsewhere where he says, all Scripture is inspired by you and is profitable for correction, for teaching, for reproof, that we all may be equipped and adequate for every good work. And it's with that desire we come to this text this morning that you might teach us and help us to understand more fully what it means to be at peace with one another and with the circumstances of life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. It's a bit unusual, these verses I just read to you, 
Uh, not that Paul is addressing the topic of people and how they're relating to each other, but the fact that he mentions two women publicly who are in some kind of a, a quarrel with each other. And what he has said so far, if you'd look back with me at chapter 1, verse 9, there he wrote, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. In that same chapter 1, down in verse 27, he had said, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Glance at chapter 2, verse 2. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, and united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And so, obviously, the idea of being uh, of one mind, and a certain one-mindedness that's to characterize Christians' relationship to each other, uh, having addressed it in general here, as I've already stated, he specifically uh, calls out uh, two women. It's interesting, the importance of this, uh, he doesn't just say, I urge Euodia and Syntyche, he says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche. So he's being very fair here and giving equal firmness to each of them that they need to be exhorted in this matter. Paul in this letter, and many of you are familiar with Philippians, it's a favorite of, of many of God's people, including me, but he has addressed primarily doctrinal matters in the first two chapters. Chapter 3, he gives the warning about false teachers. And having addressed such lofty topics such as those, why all of a sudden does he decide to address a quarrel between two women. It almost seems mundane compared to the kinds of things he's been talking about in this letter. Well, the answer to that question is simply this. The Apostle Paul understood the potential of the harm that such discord and dissension can bring in the church. We don't know very much about these women. Perhaps they were a part of the original group when Paul established that church. I think it would be reasonable to think so. But regardless, we do know this about them. They were members of the church who were well known. He mentions their names assuming everybody's going to know who they are because he is writing to the whole church starting off with the elders and deacons and you read that from the beginning in chapter 1. We know that what he has in mind is not a doctrinal dispute, because if there was ever a doctrinal issue, he always addressed that doctrine uh, very clearly and forcibly. And so what is going on here is something that is strictly relational. And then something else we know about them, and this is why I think it's so much on his heart, he says in verse 3 that they had joined arms and hearts with him that they had shared in his struggle and they had very much been a part 
of the group of believers that followed his lead and established this outpost for the gospel in the city of Philippi. He asks, well, uh, let me restate that. He admonishes, he exhorts, he urges them to live in harmony. I typically study and preach from the New American Standard Bible. I understand why the translator said live in harmony, but if we wanted to be more literal about it, basically the word that is used there simply means to think the same thing, to think uh, of the same mind, to be like-minded. And certainly this is an emphasis in the New Testament, this idea that God's people who make up the body of Christ would be like-minded, particularly in how they relate to each other. When I say there's an emphasis in the New Testament, for example, one of the first things we learn about the early church in the days after Pentecost, we read in Acts chapter 2, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. They were continuing in one mind. When Paul is writing to the Romans, he says in Romans 12, 16, be of the same mind. By the way, it's the same exact word in the Greek language in each of these texts that Paul is using here in Philippians 4. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Now Paul says that to them in chapter 12. But he comes back to the same topic as he's ending the letter. In Romans 15, 5, he says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. And to throw one other example out, when he's writing to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 13, Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Such one-mindedness, such harmony will be rooted in a disposition of humility and self-sacrifice. There's no better commentary on that sentence than just to flip back the page, two chapters, to Philippians chapter 2. Flip over there with me. You know these verses well, verses 2 through 4. And Paul writes, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. I'm persuaded that he already had Yodia and Syntyche in mind, even when he wrote those words just a couple of chapters earlier. But as I said, he does uh, call them out. But this harmony, this being of one mind, this isn't just relying on good intentions or sentimentality. Because you'll notice 
he puts a qualifier there. I urge Euodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. In fact, in verse 1, he said, stand firm in the Lord. Here he says, live in harmony in the Lord. And then when he tells us to rejoice in verse 4, we're to rejoice in the Lord. So that Christ Jesus is very central. The fact of the matter is, this kind of same-mindedness will not occur or be maintained apart from an individual walking in obedience and in fellowship with the Lord Jesus. If you are not walking closely with the Lord, frictions with your brothers and sisters will inevitably flare up. James Montgomery Boyce, who's now with the Lord and pastored for years that very famous 10th Presbyterian Church uh, in Philadelphia, he had written this comment in his commentary on these verses. and He just simply wrote, if a Christian is rejoicing in God's mercy and goodness, he likely will not be nitpicking with fellow Christians. Uh, there's, they go hand in hand, that if we're not walking closely with the Lord and seeking to please Him, that leaves us vulnerable. This is, is such a, an important aspect to how we relate to each other in the body of Christ, that Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, He makes many statements that are noteworthy and startling, but none as startling as this in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, just two verses. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Do you get the impact of that statement? As it were, interrupt your worship. Interrupt your worship of God if you, it comes to mind that there is something not right between you and a fellow believer. Something else that is uh, very helpful is what he states in verse 3. Because in seeking harmony in relationships, he then calls on the church family to come alongside these women and help them in becoming restored. I read it, but I'll read part of it again. Help these women who have shared my struggle. He addresses someone as true comrade. Uh, we don't know who that is for sure. I think a very strong case can be made for Epaphroditus, who he references earlier in this letter who he has sent uh, to them uh, to bring greeting. Because remember, Paul's writing this while he's in jail. And he is probably the, the true uh, comrade that he uh, mentions. If it's not him, it's just some person that will remain unknown to us until uh, we get to heaven. But whoever he is, not only is he not unknown to God, Everyone else that he doesn't mention by name, he says, all whose names are written in the book of life. So God knows each one of his own. And we as fellow workers are all listed in that book of life. 
And so as I said at the outset, uh, you might wonder, because I just preach from time to time, why would I choose this text? Well, in the context, we dealt with verses 2 and 3, but it was really verses 4 and 7 that was my main motive in looking at this passage with you today. But relationships in the body, and even though here at the chapel we may not have any uh, tense relationships or any broken fellowship, having been a pastor for 44 years, I have seen that occur in the church. Even when I was a college student here, and I'd only been a Christian about two years, uh, I went to a little church in one of the outlying towns, and uh, me and another, my roommate, uh, were asked to teach the boys' Sunday school class, fifth grade class. So we were driving out there and doing that each Sunday, and I'd only been in the church a few weeks when I could even tell in a church of about 200 people that there were people that just didn't speak to each other. And the pastor explained to me, he said this to me to my face, such and such a family and such and such a family have not spoken in two years. They come in Sunday morning, they sit on opposite sides of the church. I mean, I was confused. I didn't know that such a thing could exist. Uh, amongst Christians, but unfortunately that is not infrequent. You hear of church splits all the time. Uh, to me, a church split would be justified, especially if there's a doctrinal issue at stake, but most of the time it's not doctrinal. Most of the time these splits happen over relational things and very secondary and tertiary issues uh, within the church. I don't know if I referenced this. I was meeting with a younger pastor about a year and a half ago in another part of the state, and he was telling me that a family had threatened to leave the church because they were changing the times of the service in the adult Sunday school. I'm thinking, really? You know, I wasn't shocked, but it just you kind of forget how petty people can be. And um, so, like I say, I don't know what was going on with Yodi and Sinteki, but man, those two sisters needed to get down and, and resolve it and he's admonished them to do so. But the other sphere of peace is the peace that we can possess in our own hearts. Seven times in this letter, Paul states, rejoice in the Lord. And in fact, here, he not only says rejoice in the Lord, verse 4, Always, again, I will say, rejoice. It's helpful to recall, as I already stated, that Paul is in jail. He has had his share of hardships and his life being threatened. And yet we find Paul is enduring all of this and even knowing what they're going through, in fact, if you glance back at the end of chapter 1, he acknowledges something there in verses 28 through 30, when he tells them, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. And so he knows he's talking to people who are in the crucible, and they are experiencing all kinds of pressures, things that could rob them of their joy. And yet, what does he say to them? And what does he uh, say to us? He says, rejoice. And again, 
I say rejoice. I was reading through a book uh, on my shelf this last week. Uh, the title is Suffering and the Sovereignty of God by John Piper and Justin Taylor. And on this matter of rejoicing, when there are things in your life that you don't seem to readily find much joy in or reason to rejoice, uh, I thought an excerpt from this book was uh, really helpful. How on earth can heartache coexist with love, joy, peace, and an indestructible sense of life purpose? In the inner logic of faith, this makes perfect sense. In fact, because you have hope, you may feel the sufferings of this life more keenly, grief upon grief. In contrast, the grieving that has no hope often chooses denial or escape or busyness because it can't face reality without becoming distraught. In Christ, you know what's at stake. And so you keenly feel the wrong of this fallen world. You don't take pain and death for granted. You love what is good and hate what is evil. After all, you follow in the image of a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And there is in Hebrews chapter 12, and I think that this is very informative for you and me, as we think about not being anxious for anything and yearning for the peace that only God can give. Talking about having peace and joy even when things around you are not so. Hebrews 12, verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So the very thing that we are commemorating this morning with communion, and that is Jesus' torture, his death, and to follow his resurrection. Here, the writer to the Hebrews says that knowing that the cross was before him, we know Jesus even prayed to the Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will. So what was the joy that was set before Jesus? What joy, for what reason did he possess joy going to the cross? Well, because he knew what the cross was going to accomplish. I think Jesus partly was delighting in the joy of knowing we were going to be forgiven of our sins. That his people were going to be redeemed. They were going to be able to escape deserved judgment for sin. Of course, he was delighting in obeying his Father, I delight to do thy will. But understand this, rejoicing is not just a feeling. Uh, it's, a, it's a choice. Paul's language here, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He had stated this uh, same uh, thought earlier in the letter when he says in chapter 1, 
verse 18, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Do you get the, the force of that? He is deciding, regardless of the way things look or how hard it might be, and in this case, persecution because of their identification with Christ, I will rejoice. One of the reasons, <clears throat> excuse me, that we certainly rejoice <clears throat> is because there is a peace that God supplies to his people. And if you have not read John, <clears throat> excuse me, John 15, 16, and 17 recently, let me remind you of a few of Jesus' statements lifted from those chapters. Jesus' final promises overflow with the promise of peace. For example, my joy will be in you and your joy will be made full. Your grief will be turned to joy. No one will take your joy away from you. Ask and you will receive so that your joy will be made full. These things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. And so Jesus is giving a promise of joy, reason to rejoice, despite the obstacles. So another yet exhortation in this little letter to rejoice. And then in verse 5, he adds, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. I did a little digging on the phrase there, let your gentleness, because that sounded a little mamby-pamby to me. It seems like when you're kind of in the crucible, you know, let gentleness be that which you are known for. But the word, uh, I mean, the word, and trying to get the English equivalent, there's so, many, uh, there's so many options because the word carries the idea of being forbearing, of kindness, of, of moderation, of sweet reasonableness, uh, of yielding one's rights, um, of being lenient. There's really no one word in English that captures what he's saying, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. And when he says all men, it's not just fellow Christians. He's talking about people in general. I like the way one scholar put it. He said, it's the attitude of a man who is charitable towards men's faults and merciful in his judgment of their failings. And then Paul adds, the Lord is near, or literally the Lord is at hand. And how we take that um, I don't know that I can be dogmatic. Uh, it could be a reference to the fact that they expected Christ's return. Uh, the Lord is near. Uh, or it could be that the Lord is near in the sense that at any time our life comes to an end and a believer dies, uh, the Lord is at hand. Uh, and perhaps in the context here, it just means the Lord is near, that He's here present with you now. You know, the psalmist expresses, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Be anxious, verse 6, for nothing. Be anxious 
for nothing. Wow. Anybody in here this morning battling with worry? I would be surprised. It would be easier to ask who isn't uh, to raise hands, to keep almost everyone from raising their hands. And yet, God's Word is true. We would not be exhorted to set aside being anxious about things if it was not possible to do it. The Bible does not call us to do what God is not prepared to enable us uh, to do. And of course, you know, the English word for worry comes from an older word which means literally to strangle. The word in the, in the Greek text, when he says, do not be anxious, that word literally means to be pulled apart. To be pulled apart. To be pulled in different directions. We've all, had, we've all experienced this. Where we just feel very divided and, and we just feel like we're being pulled from every direction. And sometimes with the tension so great we think we're just literally going to be pulled apart. And certainly anyone in the counseling industry can vouch for the fact that for someone who becomes distraught and is overly anxious, who struggles with anxiety, can have many uh, physical manifestations of that, everything from ulcers to headaches to compulsive habits to weight gain or weight loss, heart stress, just being a grouch. But what does he say is the antidote for being anxious? Well, it's clearly there in the text. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. I try not to do this. I try not to do this. But over the years, when people have come to me for pastoral counseling, and it's not unusual for people to find themselves worried and being anxious about one thing or another, I think you would agree that the best counsel is not to say, well, just stop it. <laughs> Don't do that. Uh, easier said than done. But we are told not to be anxious. And so there's got to be a way that somehow we can be freed out from underneath this burden of anxiety. I certainly have dealt with anxiety on and off throughout my life uh, and worried about one thing or another. Uh, there's not a person in here that's probably not going to have some uh, struggle with anxiety if you're waiting on a, a lab report that you know if it comes back with the wrong report, it's going to mean some pretty serious things have to be dealt with, either for yourself or someone in your family. But he says that the antidote begins with prayer. And he, he uses three different words. The first one, prayer, is just a general term for um, devotion and worship and communing with the Father. Uh, supplications, as you know, just means earnestly sharing um, needs and problems. And the final is that our prayer should always include thanksgiving, gratitude to God for who He is and 
what he has done in saving us and for the strength and grace he supplies when we are in these hard places of life. The way he states it here is we are to worry about nothing but pray about everything. But everything by prayer. Remember the parable of the, the ten lepers who were healed? And the thing that was characteristic about one of the ten? Only one returned to give thanks and express appreciation. And so, <clears throat> certainly thanksgiving should characterize it. We've been studying First Peter in our men's study on Thursday mornings, and Peter makes a statement that really goes hand in hand uh, with Paul's statement here. First uh, Peter chapter 5, some of you have probably memorized this verse. Verses 6 and 7, Therefore, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. That is one of the most personal and intimate promises that is given to us in the Scripture. That God individually cares about each one of us. And Jesus, I mean, Peter and Paul didn't come up with this. They learned that from Jesus. Uh, I know that you're familiar with it, but I want you to hold your place here and turn over with me to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 and 6. Matthew 5. Again, I'm reading from uh, the New American Standard Bible. Matthew chapter 6 is actually where I want you to turn. Matthew 6. Now here, the New American Standard opts for the word, instead of being anxious, it opts for the word worried, which is obviously just a synonym. But listen to what Jesus says, starting in verse 25. And I hope as I read these verses that, I mean, they just hang around the edges of your mind the rest of this day. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. 
but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And so in just listening to those words from the Lord Jesus, he makes it clear that we're to keep in mind that we are more important to God than birds are, and that God will not cease to care for us, that he knows our needs, and since we can't, it says add an hour, but literally that's a cubit 18 inches, you can't add even a foot and a half to your life that's outside of the prescribed uh, will of God. And so, <clears throat> this peace that is promised to us here in verse 7 is the peace that Jesus said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And as J. Oswald Sanders, my utmost for his highest, once said, and many others have said the same thing, peace is not the absence of trouble, but it's the presence, it's the presence of God. And so when he says that there is a peace, verse 7, that passes all comprehension, what that says to me is that humanly speaking, it doesn't make sense, it is not logical that we could possess this kind of peace in the face of some of the terrible things that people can face. And it happens to be on this topic that I have to say that the people of God that I have had the pleasure of shepherding throughout my pastoral life have often been the ones pastoring me as I have watched them and walk with them through some of these heartaches and griefs of life. And, and it doesn't make sense how someone can rejoice and have peace when such terrible tragedy has hit. And in context here, particularly when someone is suffering for being a Christian. And I fear that, at least in our society, that the pressure is just going to continue on Christians as we continue to stand for what the Bible teaches and as the culture uh, is more and more rejecting uh, the truths and the morality of the Bible and embracing godless worldviews, I don't think it's going to be getting better. But, you know, Isaiah uh, sets forth the promise in Isaiah 26.3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts uh, in you. D.A. Carson, who is a New Testament scholar, perhaps arguably the finest one in North America, and he has uh, made the statement that this goes way beyond an intellectual argument when you talk about a peace that surpasses human understanding. 
And I've just lifted a few sentences from him, and I think he says it so well, I'm going to pass along another quote to you. He says, the degree of our peace of mind is tied to our prayer life. This is not because prayer is psychologically soothing, but because we address a prayer-answering God, a personal God, a responding God, a sovereign God, whom we can trust with the outcomes of life's confusions. And we learn with time that if God in this or that instance does not choose to take away the suffering or utterly remove the evil, he does send grace and power. The result is praise. And I think he states it well. I think uh, aside from the scriptures themselves, Probably a quote that I have shared with folks more than any other single quote is one I have before me here. And some of you may have heard me read from this before, but I've decided to read it again for those of you who've not heard it. It's uh, written by a former seminary professor. And I think it informs the very things we're talking about this morning Grace does not make everything right. Grace's trick is to show us that it is right for us to live, that it is truly good, wonderful even, for us to be breathing and feeling at the same time that everything clustering around is wholly wretched. Grace is not a ticket to utopia. Grace does not cure all our cancers, transform all our kids into winners, or send us all soaring into the high skies of sex and success. Grace is rather an amazing power to look reality full in the face, see its sad and tragic edges, feel its cruel cuts, join in the primeval chorus against its outrageous unfairness, and yet feel in your deepest being that it is good and right for you to be alive on God's good earth. Grace is power, I say, to see life very clearly. Admit it is sometimes all wrong, and still know that somehow in the center of your life, it's all right. This is one reason we call it amazing grace. I think, too, and I'm going to leave you with one final illustration. About 40 years ago, I mean, I know we just had the World Series here. I don't follow it, but I guess last week, um, did Atlanta win, I think? But um, over 40 years ago, uh, thousands of fans were in the stadium in Madison, Wisconsin, to watch the University of Wisconsin play Michigan State in football. And of course, the crowd was very enthusiastic and zealous and cheering for Wisconsin. But as the game went on, it became very evident who the better team was, because Michigan State was winning handily. But what seemed odd to some folks was the fact that even while things were going all wrong for the University of Wisconsin, there were thousands of these Wisconsin fans that kept kind of uh, spontaneously shouting and cheering wildly. And it didn't make sense. What were they cheering about? Well, unbeknownst to a lot of people, thousands of these fans had portable radios because just 70 miles away, the Milwaukee Brewers were in a World Series game. And they were cheering not to what they were watching in front of them, their immediate circumstances, but they were cheering because they were looking and hearing something else. 
And when I think of that example, I think it should bring to mind when Paul says we look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. And I think that's part of us having an understanding of what it means to have a peace that surpasses human understanding, because it's not rooted in what we see in front of us, but rather we're looking to God's overarching plan and purposes for our life, which certainly have wonderful eternal uh, ramifications.